0: In Camelot, Camelot, those are the legal
1: laws The snow may never slush upon the hillside By 9 p.m. the moonlight must appear In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot For happily ever aftering than here Yes! Here at the Comic Book Historian's Podcast! Yay!
0: Thank
1: you. thank you, thank you, my loyal subjects. And this is I, your king, I I, I mean your host, Sir William O'Field. Yes, today, like three Connecticut Yankees in King Arthur's Court, we're traveling back, back, back in time to 1956. When in real life, the only true king was Elvis, thank you very much. But in comics, and in our first topic, the throne was being passed from EC to Atlas, from Valor to the Black Knight, and from Wally Wood to Joe Manili, all while the Comics Code requires more chivalry and no more debauchery. In our second section, we look at the arrival of two more knights at the Atlas Roundtable, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. And then the fall as Atlas shrugs and is nearly ruined, not from infidelity, but from a monumentously bad distribution deal. After that, we each do our 100 seconds of jousting and joshing, and then who knows? Maybe I'll just sing another song. But first, let me give this royal introduction to my fellow knights in white satin or white Satan, depending on where you live. <laughs> Greetings, our own Arabian Knight, Sir Alex of Grand. Alex, how are you, buddy? Nay, nay,
2: I'm good. I'm good, King Bill. Thank you.
0: Leave You're that horse alone, Jim,
1: Alex. I'm about the horses, <laughs> I and mean, Jim's still doing the daily horses, by the way, and and he's also betting on the horses daily. And here he is, without further ado, Jim Earl of Nippicking Thompson. Jimmy, how are you, hey. buddy? Hey, Bill. And you're not wearing at are you? Sorry. Okay. Well, okay, so, my eyelids, what what doth be happening this week? Alex, what are you up to? Well, I'm
2: catching up on my TV shows, and I'm really loving Riverdale. And I don't know if you guys are watching it, but I just love watching this modern version of these old characters. It's a lot of fun.
1: Have you guys ever seen that? Yeah. I have not, believe it or not. I want to see it. I just... I don't know. I have a problem with Miss Grundy being hot, for one thing. I don't think that's right. It's just not like in the comics. I Archie being a hunk is kind of stupid, because remember how goofy he looked in the early days? Right. And this has got, hey girls, it's me, Archie.
2: The original Archie was based on Mickey Rooney's character that he did for like fifteen or to twenty years or something. But I like this new Archie for a new generation. I think it keeps Archie relevant. I'm kind of a purist anyway, but this really takes it to a really fun level. I really recommend you watch it. If you like Twin Peaks and Murder Mysteries, a bunch of poor innocent teenagers getting slowly corrupted over a period of time, this is a show for you.
1: But I can watch Scooby Doo for that. That's true. Now. Good point. I'm kidding.
2: That's a good I'm point. Kidding.
1: Well that's good. I'll I'll have to I'll have to check out Riverdale on the CW. <laughs> and now and now we shift over to Sir Jim of Thompson. Jim, what are you doing this week?
0: I'm gonna to go to Toronto on Monday for a conference. And the exciting part of that is to get to go back to like the beguiling comic store and see some comic book historian friends, meet them for the first time. We've got a dinner planned I just love going to cities where they have comic book stores that are different from mine and exploring them. I mean, going to London and seeing Forbidden Planet or going to Austin in these giant warehouse comic stores that are. Do you know the one I'm talking about, Bill?
1: No, I do not. I do. I do know the people you're going to see, and I'm excited about that. You're going to see Robin Fisher, Mitchell Brown and the fabulous Coombe. I'm jealous. These are all friends of mine on Facebook too, and except Mitchell, because Mitchell hasn't printed them. <laughs> but that's another story altogether. Well, that's the <laughs> inside baseball we're
0: giving everybody now. That's, that's um, general. Yeah, it's great. You know, I love Toronto, but I I just like going. I haven't been to a, a new comic book store or an old comic book store that I haven't been to in a in a while, and it's just fun because that particular one is very different from. The mainstream one that I kind of have to go to these days in in Los Angeles.
1: Well, the sad news is, of course, the crack-smoking mayor has passed away, so... Oh, is he dead? I didn't know he died. Yeah, Yeah,
0: he died.
2: died. What a character he was. I liked him.
1: He was kind of a good comic book character, kind of. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He had personality. I've been watching Jessica Jones. I won't give anything away, but in the first episode marvel timely character from the golden age shows up and not exactly the way you might expect and it's someone who got his powers from being bitten by a mongoose but i'll say no more i'll say no more because i would
0: hate for you to actually give away something bob
1: (laughs) bob my name's bill Quick question. Who has a better story for
2: becoming a speedster? Mongoose blood or hard water inhalation? You guys decide. Oh, no, no. Or saying a weird equation that makes no sense. Who has the best source of
1: power?
0: Oh, I was trying to think about who could spoil something quicker.
1: <laughs> me, me, Bill Field. Thank you. All I am right. the spoiler. That's
2: right. The spoiler. So now let's drink our mongoose blood and move on to the next part, Bill. Okay, my vote
1: was for Mongoose Blood, just for the <laughs> record. I just want to make that very clear. So, without further ado, Jim, the Valorous thing to do at this point would probably be to move on to our first topic. So let me ask you,
0: what the hell was Valor? So Valor, Bill, was the name of one of seven titles under EC's New Direction once the Comics Code came into existence. EC canceled its three horror books, made some other changes, got rid of the Shock Suspense Stories book, and then created these seven titles to go in a new direction, as it were. They ended the uh, horror titles in September 1954. They shifted to these realistic books like... M.D. and Psychoanalysts, they also did Impact, which was like shock suspense stories, only without the bite. It was a, a little bit watered down version. Extra, which is, was about journalists, edited by Johnny Craig, Alex, uh, your guy. Ace is High, which was sort of a continuation of the Kurtzman War books, but without Kurtzman, and credible science fiction, and the one I wanted to talk about, which is Valor. Uh, Valor was edited by Al Feldstein and had uh, regular artists like Graham Ingalls, Steen, George Evans, Joe Orlando, Al Williamson, and Wally Wood, who was doing some, some great work on that. It was, it was interesting because it was doing a lot of the similar kind of stories that were in Kurtzman's Two-Fisted Tale and Frontline Combat, but without Kurtzman forcing his own methodology on the story. So it's it's looser and allowed those artists to experiment a little bit more than they were allowed to do under Kurtzman's Mm, run. All of these ran for only like six issues or five five issues actually. Uh psychoanalysis only ran for four issues. And then that was the end of EC's comics apart from Mad Magazine. Nice. And then there was of course their attempt at baby comics, where they did Tales from the
1: Crib with the Crib Keeper. (laughs) That's
2: right, the Comics Code did that. I'm a big Wally Wood fan, and those Valor stories are actually kind of fun to see his art. You know, again, these stories are watered-down versions of what they did before with EC Comics, just as the Comics Code was limiting distribution, and so you're not going to get their comics on the newsstand and sell and make money, so they had to water it down, and that lost a lot of the sparkle, but the Wood issues really stand out. Williamson is in these issues, and it is fun seeing their go and wood was in issues one two and five and the valor stories are essentially what they call the new direction which jim was talking about like the new watered down ec comics and they're just trying to figure out what's acceptable they can't do horror they can't do crime From romance they can't really show that much action in it so what do they do so they're trying the whole king arthur theme and the knights theme
1: you allow me to interrupt yeah. but wood was great on the knight stuff he even did a lot of that. And a lot of the things that he published in Wits End uh-huh. and that's right. other things after that. He probably really enjoyed doing that stuff. But when it comes to night, I kind of am a Joe Manelli guy.
2: And that's true. And his Black Knight stuff is cool. But, you know, something I like about these Valor stories, it's funny. You can actually see elements of the EC Comics new trend stuff, the horror stuff, because his first story... In the first issue, there's a King Arthur theme and one guy being an imposter, King Arthur. And then King Arthur's ghost kills him. And you see a sword that says King Arthur's sword in the imposter's chest. And people coming in going, oh, my gosh, choke. And there was like this attempt at a shock ending. So you could see they were kind of still used to their old way of storytelling in this New Direction comics. It is fun to see that transition. But I don't know, Jim, you've read a lot of night stories and Viking Prince, Valor and Black Knight. Tell me about that stuff.
0: It was a smart move on their part, and I'm not sure why it didn't go anywhere. And maybe it's it maybe it did. I mean, it, it maybe it would have been fine. It's just that the EC was not what it was known for, so they people weren't interested in doing the new direction, no matter how good the books were. Because this is a golden period. I don't think there's ever been anything like this this 1955-1956 to have Valor. To have brave and bold, the stuff that was going DC was doing at the time, including Kubert's Viking Prince. Those books were great, and then Black Knight. Just I think the the best of Atlas to some degree. But all of this was an informed decision based upon the movies, because in 1954, MGM did Knights of the Roundtable. 20th Century Fox did Prince Valiant from Prince Valiant. Warner Brothers did King Richard and the Crusaders. Universal did the Black Shield of Falworth. And this was a key one in October of 1954. Columbia did Black Knight starring Alan Ladd. That's basically the exact same storyline with a character pretending to be cowardly, but then dressing up like the Scarlet Pimpernel basically and going on these adventures. It's, very, very similar to that, not an obvious source for it. So they thought because of the success of these movies at that time, that this was a natural. But the superheroes were getting ready to come in and, and everything was in a state of flux. And I think really the only one that had any any life to it was the DC one, Viking Prince. That's something I still need
2: to kind of look into. I, I can't wait to read that.
0: Jim, have you ever seen the movie Prince Valiant?
1: No. It's actually stars Robert Wagner, of all oh, people. Oh, really? Wow. As Prince Valiant. Yes, it does. That's cool. The, the now suspect in a murder case, Robert Wagner.
2: That's very quaint.
1: It's, it's strange, <laughs> right? But he was Prince Valiant, and he had that Prince Valiant haircut. Now, Bill,
2: why do you like the Joe Manili Black Knight stories?
1: What's your take on those? Okay, my take on this, those is this. He had, and I don't know, this may be, actually be something rare that Jim agrees with me on. He had a perspective or point of view in his art that brought in establishing shots and gave it a grandeur that medieval tales rarely got. He gave it the grandeur it deserved. And I believe his storytelling lent itself very well to medieval stories and i i think he would have been someone to make an easy transition into superheroes into the marvel era i i hate to keep conjecturing because i know that's not yeah. really what his fans do but the sad story of course about joe manili is he was really going places and he decided unfortunately to go places one day on a subway and fell uh onto the tracks and was run over At a very early age, a lot of people thought he would have been up there with Kirby and Ditko had he stuck with Marvel, had he lived. So much has been talked about, especially recently. There seems to be a new uh, wave of Manili lovers. There is. It's from the reprints, and it's also from a lot of
2: the conjecture that people wonder how 60s Marvel could have been had he stayed alive. But, you know, some background on Joe Manili was he was from Pennsylvania, just like Ditko was. He worked in the Navy in the visual aids department. Not The HIV AIDS department, the visual AIDS department, Bill, just so you know... Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, no problem. Then left after three years. He illustrated some pulps for Street and Smith until he started working for Atlas in 1949. So, Black Knight 1 through 5 in 1955, the first three issues were by Joe Manili and Stan Lee, interior wise. The last two, Joe Manili didn't do the interiors, but he did all the covers. And these were just fun stories. You had the story of Percy, Merlin, the Ebony Blade, and, and you get elements of that with the Dane Whitman Black Knight in The Avengers. So, it is kind of a Marvel character character, actually, that Joe Manili and Stan Lee created. They just didn't realize they'd keep using that story later. There's also a side story, which is kind of a fascinating one that I liked reading during the Crusades about the half Arabic Saracen who joins crusaders after finding out one of them is his half-brother through their Frankish mother who was raped and captured in the Middle East. These are just fun stories, and I think something that the Black Knight had that Valor didn't was just a continuing sense of story and people unrequited love, and like Jim was saying, the kind of nebbish public identity, and then the Scarlet Pimpernel backstory, and then maintaining that character through... I think that was a huge advantage over EC Comics' Valor stories. At the same time, though, just so we remember, newsstands and distribution were prejudiced against anything that had an EC Comics logo on it and was a comic book because of the whole disaster in the earlier 50s, the Senate subcommittee hearings and all that. So they were prejudiced against, and that was another factor. But still, I think the Black Knight stories are more fun for me than the Valor stories.
0: I'm not sure that... Stan Lee wrote anything beyond the first issue. That one is signed. None of the others are. Mm-hmm. In the Masterworks one, Rory Thomas doing the mm-hmm. the preface, he sort of hedges on that, that, that we know Stan Lee did at least the first one. I don't know about past, past that, who did it. I think Bill's right about Manili in terms of the, the drawing, primarily because he plays with those full panel, uh, horizontal panels, where he'll have like sort of montages of sword fights. He's doing more interesting sword fights even than, by far than Wood is in, in Valor. And I think better than, than anybody else I can think of. He, he does this movement where they, for the character moves and he uses more white space per page. Where he doesn't have panel borders in in different places, almost almost in every single page. It's pretty sophisticated stuff, actually, uh, what he's doing, and it must have gotten some people's attention because it stands out. When uh, Fred Keita comes in the next issue in four, and Sid Shores in five, there's such a decline totally. in quality of, of of this thing. That's right. And I, th- I, then uh, the other thing I wanted to say was that Manili, uh, one of the, the, and you touched on it. This is really a precursor to superhero comics at Atlas, to go back into that, because this is a person with a secret identity, wearing a mask, with some superpowers, primarily in Merlin, but also with the Black Blade or the Ebony Blade, as they call it. I, I would say that that there's another Manili reoccurring character, a title character that we should mention in this in, in the context of this. And that would be the yellow clock.
2: Yes, and that's a really fun read. You know, there's a great Masterworks book that Jim was chatting about earlier, and it has the Joe Manili work in it with the Black Knight and the Yellow Claw. And the Yellow Claw is an Eastern-based mastermind menace. And they have that for each decade because back in Silver Street Comics 6, 1940 by Jack Cole, they actually had the Green Claw, which was essentially like an earlier version of the Yellow Claw. And Joe Manili and Al Fieldstein in Yellow Claw 1, 1956 created the Yellow Claw, and it has some great mini-lee art. And it's actually really different from the next three issues, which Jack Kirby penciled, inked, and wrote. Although some people think that Ross Kirby may have helped him ink those stories, but I'm not sure.
0: And John Severin comes in.
2: John Severin inked issue four, that's correct.
1: Oh, fantastic. And, and his yellow claws were so great. And an amazing thing is is that Yellow Claw is actually one of the first Marvel Age characters and Jimmy Woo because they wind up graduating to S.H.I.E.L.D., not so much the Yellow Claw. He's an adversary, of course, but Jimmy Woo gets uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. status thanks to Jim Steranko uh, 10 years later. That
2: is true. And something that's also fun is that Al Fieldstein, who wrote The Yellow Claw, he was actually editor of EC Comics from 1950 to 1956. Essentially, when EC Comics fell through, Harvey Kurtzman was still the editor of Mad Magazine, because that was the golden jewel of Bill Gaines' uh, comics line. Al Feldstein didn't have a job. He worked over at Atlas, and he made Yellow Claw number 1. But then Harvey Kurtzman actually was seduced away by Hugh Hefner to make Trump Magazine, and it was essentially a slick comedy book. And Wally Wood worked on that first issue. It's actually really interesting. But that being said, there was a vacancy now over at EC Comics. So then Al Fieldstein left Yellow Claw after that first issue to go back to become editor of Mad Magazine, which he did for essentially 30 years from 56 to 85. But those next few issues with Kirby, they're really interesting because essentially Jack Kirby invents or creates mutants for Marvel Comics, because one of those Yellow Claw issues had to do with mutants, people born with extra powers, and they were reality warping and all these things. So Jack Kirby really brought like another twist of genetic mutation, one to Marvel to begin with, as far as also bringing that to the X-Men that he did with Stan Lee. But also just brought a whole other angle, kind of a sci-fi angle on the yellow claw stories. Those are really fun to read. And then of course the John Severin Inc. in issue four is pretty cool. Kirby is actually credited as the actual writer of the very first mutant story for what would later become Marvel. So
0: that is fun. That's amazing. Did you know that, Jim? Yeah, not only that, Bill, he, he actually did the very first Inhuman story. Who Jack Kirby? Back what? in at at Timely in in like what? one of the very first very, very first books that he ever worked on.
2: It was in Captain America Comics. It's not necessarily showing the Inhumans, but Tuck, the first Avenger, has a origin of him trying to find the island of the gods, Atalan, and he specifically says Atalan in it, and that's a Kirby and Simon story, so that is actually that's pretty amazing. cool. Yeah, and they bring that wow. into the Thor origin of the Inhumans and the Kree, and Jack Kirby brings Attilan back into those stories. So this is Jack Kirby's fascination with ancient aliens. Right. I mean, he's always from 1940 and on. He brings this stuff in as if these gods from space and all that stuff. So.
1: Eternals. Yeah. Come on, guys. Come with me as we go to Section 2. Well, this seems like the perfect segue to talking about how in 1956, Atlas became the temporary home of two men who would later usher in the Marvel Age of Comics. Yes, I'm talking about Jack the King Kirby and sturdy Steve Ditko. Now, Alex, you were saying how Kirby took over Yellow Claw, but what was he doing before that? Jack Kirby
2: and Joe Simon were partners for 16 years or so up to this point. And they had pioneered romance, and they were working on crime and horror with Crestwood. Then they were self-publishing in the early 50s with their mainline comics with titles like Bullseye. However, EC Comics which was a non-Mad Magazine comic line of Bill Gaines, folded, and they just couldn't get on the newsstands, and their watered-down product wasn't as good. And so, essentially, they lost money, they lost business, and because they lost business, leader distributors, they were distributing the EC Comics. They went out of business as a result of EC Comics going out of business, and it was a domino effect where then... The Simon and Kirby mainline comics, they also went out of business because they were using the same distributor EC was. There was some money issues. People owed each other money. People weren't making money. And the Simon and Kirby partnership actually fell apart at this time. And they never really worked together again, except for some random 1970s Sandman comic. So they sold their remaining work to Charlton, they cashed out, they parted ways. Kirby worked over at DC Comics, or National, as well as Atlas, where he did that Yellow Comics 2 and some Western and War books. But again, as usual, there was less creative freedom at DC Comics than there was at Atlas. And at the same time, Stanley was editing large amounts of Western romance humor, 12 War Comics, Weird mystery stories so it's actually kind of an interesting time with these guys where they didn't really realize what they were going to make you know five six years later
1: you know Roz Kirby actually told me that the reason they split up was because Kirby finally got tired of being taken advantage of by Simon because Simon always made quite a bit more than Kirby in any of their endeavors together and he he was more the business head of the two I think there was a lot of animosity because of that you've heard that also haven't you Jim
0: I think everybody has a story.
2: When partnerships fall apart and people are losing money, you know, self-preservation kicks in. Amen. You know, everyone's going to have their version of what happened. Obviously, that makes sense for Roz Kirby to say something like that, essentially, if their partnership broke apart after 16 years and they never worked together again, clearly some betrayal of something happened. Clearly there were hard feelings. That's life.
0: Yeah, guys, I'm speaking as a divorce lawyer, so this is a divorce. <laughs> and when, when you do that, every but that's when I say everybody has a story. Nobody tells the truth when there's a divorce because everybody has their perspective and they're angry about it. So, but I don't want to call... Roz Kirby, a liar by any means.
2: How dare you, Jim? Roz Kirby, you're calling her a liar. My God, what, what? you animal! Jim? You're an oh, animal. God. Jim hates sweet little
1: Roz Kirby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's why I kind of phrase what I was saying like that. In that, yeah, but when you when people lose money, self-preservation kicks in, and you have a bunch of different versions of the same thing.
1: Well, and also not only that, but Jim. will I think again, Jim may back me up on this, but it all depends on your point of view also because everybody sees things differently and it's not necessarily wrong or right.
0: It's just how you see it. Yeah. It's just like Stanley and Jack Kirby, the absolute zealots on both sides are missing, that there's some place in the middle or, or something that's negotiable. Everything Jack Kirby said about it isn't true. Everything Stan Lee said about it is certainly not true. And so I'm just giving Joe Simon the same benefit that I would give Stan Lee, because why wouldn't I?
2: When you look at any documentation that's involved, there's so many contradictions that it comes down to, like, faith in who you believe, and it gets really funny. It turns into a religion for some people.
1: Amen. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't even mean. I didn't even mean that the way it came out. But that is funny. Okay, now Kirby's story is somewhat different than Ditko's pathway. Of course, Ditko is traveling through some other dimensions, so that's to be expected. Now, if I'm not mistaken, guys, the guy that had the biggest impact on an early Steve Ditko and Joe Kubert was Mort Meskin. Not only did they work in his studio. In their early days, but he was also a mentor and father figure to both of them. I was curious what you guys thought about that.
2: Well, Meskin was a genius, and he had a tumultuous soul, and Ditko doesn't exactly have a happy, gleeful soul himself, so there's probably some interesting kinship there, but you could see a lot of the Ditko's style, especially early on, had a huge Meskin influence, and sometimes it's hard to even tell the difference between the art that they're making. Actually, Meskin is a whole other topic in itself, but
0: oh, yeah. definitely
2: an interesting figure who actually died happy, went into advertising, and lived happily ever after, after a lot of horrible psychological stuff happened first. But at any anyway, that's another deal.
1: Wow. You know, he left Charlton where he was in the early days for Atlas, but not for the reason people think. Charlton actually had a great flood in 1955 in Connecticut. It was from Hurricane Dana, I believe, or Diana. I can't remember. It was from a hurricane. Let's just say that. What happened from the aftermath was the uh, Charlton facility, which was 7.1 acres. Yes, it was pretty big. It was uh, flooded 18 feet. In fact, some of the artists had to be rescued by helicopter in 1955, which that amazes me. But it was really bad. And then Charlton, San Angelo, the owner himself, said that, oh, we're back up and running in 10 months. However, Dick Giordano, of course, the legendary DC artist and editor at Charlton, said, no, it was took us a lot longer than that because we really had to clean up a lot of crap. So basically what happened was Ditko had tuberculosis or has tuberculosis because he's still with us and you never get rid of it. But he needed more money and Charlton actually – San Angelo made everybody take a 50% pay cut, even though he got a healthy dividend from the government for the damage. So I think he was kind of, you know, putting it to his people, but they thought he was great. So what happened was, was that then Ditko went to Atlas, where he started doing some wonderful work and was being paid twice, if not four times as much, depending on how you look at it. And then he went back to Charlton And then, of course, he winds up at Marvel in 1959, and the rest
2: is history. Now, do you think when they were escaping on helicopter from the flood, Sant'Angelo was like, Hey, uh, uh, somebody save the spaghetti sauce.
1: uh." (laughs) Well, you know, uh, for all our Italian listeners out there, I I do not think that, Alex. But, you know... (laughs) I
2: heard he was trying to pay his artists in meatballs after... The flood because he was trying to like, hey, look, hey, look, I got a plenty of meatball here for everybody.
1: Well, the sad thing is, is that some people got paid as little as 50 cents a page at that time. That's right. That's and, true. And they took it down to it was just ridiculous the wages he was paid. Right. right. And, and every time he would go once a year to Italy and he'd come back with a plane load of uh, Italian immigrants and he'd put them to work at the plant. And he'd house them in his own company houses and take their rent out of their paycheck. So I, I don't think San Angelo was as good a guy as some people think, but he had plenty of spaghetti at the cafeteria. He was like, hey,
2: manja, manja.
1: And if anybody needed any brick laid, well, you know, but well, the funny thing is, is he had a wonderful Italian marbled ballroom. In the center of Charlton, which n- not many people know hmm, about. Cool. And anybody who got married while they worked at Charlton could have their wedding and their uh, reception there in the Marble Ballroom. I mean, <laughs> that's,
2: that's amazing. Cool.
1: I mean, that's, I don't know. I find that a little charming, I-, I must say. No, I do too. But, Jim, I know you love these guys. What do you think about Ditko and Kirby at Atlas?
0: Them in terms of, of this particular year, 1956. And that's an interesting year for, I think, Ditko's development because he was churning out, as you said, he was prolific. Uh, he churned out a lot of stuff at Charlton because that's how he could make a living because they never paid as much as, as Atlas was going to. So while he was at Atlas, he was actually taking less assignments and putting more into his work so you watch that one year and his work evolves in a way that it doesn't in other places he's really refining certain things he starts off looking very much almost like Wally Wood in that it's it's very line driven and by the end of that year, he's really moved his game around a little bit, and he's more abstract, and he's playing with with it in terms of space and objects rather than just filling every inch of the page the way that he was doing prior to that at Charlton, which is kind of counterintuitive because you would think you would simplify at Charlton, but in fact, he became... More simplified and more abstract in an interesting way in 1956, which was an exclusive Marvel Atlas year. As for Kirby, I think the thing that I I like about Kirby in that particular year is Yellow Claw, because he's writing it, and it's very clear he's writing it. And although the, the required stories are like five or six pages long, so he doesn't get to develop it in big ideas away, but Still, there's an awful lot of even Fourth World kind of and his DC stuff in those pages in comics of the Yellow Claw ones. So I, I love those. I think those are fantastic to study. So I think if I had to say anything, I'd say 1956 is a really good study year for both Kirby and for Ditko. What's interesting is when they come back. In, well, Kirby never quite leaves. Ditko does leave and then comes back in 1959. And there for the first time, they're joined together where Kirby's doing some uh, war stories for battle. And it's pretty clear he's writing those I think, as well. And Ditko is inking them. But Ditko's inking them, sort of, one of them at least, in very much a style that looks more like John Severin. And so there's a lot of factors going on. It's just an exciting time before they become something very different when they start doing the Marvel stuff directly with Stan Lee. And, you know, I love interdimensional foxhole
1: where a uh, private Stephen Strange is never mind.
2: Jim, what do you think of Kirby's Black Rider? Did you like, the, have you read those?
0: Yeah, I I like those. The Western stuff that he did, I mean, the, he was doing, Ditko's very, very narrow in this particular year. He's only doing primarily horror and science fiction as he went on to do with Stan Lee. Kirby's the utility guy that comes in and he's doing everything. He's doing the monster stuff. He's doing the romance stuff. He's doing a lot of Western stuff. I personally don't think that the Western stuff that Kirby does is nearly as interesting as most of the stable of, of Western artists that Marvel had, <laughs> Atlas had at the time because they're fantastic. They've got every And Manili... More than any of them, in my opinion. Although Severin and and got so many of them, we could do an episode just on that. Wiley, they just have an incredible group of artists doing that. I love his. I mean, I I hate to so dispute it with you, Jim, but I really his two
1: gun kid stuff, his early western stuff. I love it, and I love the other guys too. And I'm really a Severin fan, but I really enjoyed. Kirby seemed to get it from the standpoint of the 10-star high noon kind of thing, you know, where it was more a battle between
0: good and evil.
1: But, hey,
0: I digress. It's simplified. That's what I don't like about it. I think compared to the complexity of Manili's stuff that has more humor and it has it's superheroizes it to some degree. It's okay. I like it. I don't like it as much as the others. You know,
2: something about those Rawhide Kid, and I know that's a whole other element, but Rawhide Kid is thought of as the first Silver Age collaboration between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. But it's funny, when you read a lot of those stories, they bring some of those same elements in Spider-Man. Like, I think he had an Uncle Ben. They would play like the same three stories over and over and over again, but that whole element of him looking bad so that someone else looks like a hero, but he's a secret noble person, like Spider-Man would kind of run into that kind of stuff. So it is kind of interesting to see some of the tropes they would kind of use and reuse across different comics around the same time.
0: Besides Manili, Doug Wiley is doing amazing stuff over there. Have you guys ever seen any of that stuff that he did?
2: Doug Wildie Yeah. You're talking about the Outlaw Kid, right?
0: Yeah, it is Outlaw Kid.
2: Yeah, it's Outlaw Kid.
0: I mean, there is there is Ringo Kid. Right.
1: Okay,
2: so he did both of them.
1: Okay.
0: So uh, wildie is fantastic. And
1: you know what Wildie's best known for? He's best known for creating... Johnny Quest, nice. Okay, I'll quit.
2: He also did the Spirit newspaper strip, and he did something with Submariner for the uh, Marvel Comics cartoon in uh, what 1966. He did some frames of Submariner. Wow, I didn't yeah.
1: know that. Stronger than a whale, faster than a fish. I'm sorry, I don't know the theme song, but something like that. You didn't you didn't like me singing the Submariner theme song, did you? I liked it. It was great.
2: It made me feel good. Yeah, uh,
0: I felt so warm. Good.
2: Thank you. And then Kirby and Ditko left. Goodman makes some bad moves, and the whole thing goes to crap.
1: And Camelot. Camelot And that of course takes us to section three. That's exactly right. EC was gone. Atlas had an incredible bullpen of artists, and then The kingdom crashes. Alex, no one loves getting into the weeds of distribution deals more than you. What the heck happened?
2: Something I want to kind of add in about the distribution maneuvers that had occurred is that Martin Goodman had his own distribution company, and that was actually called Atlas. So his distribution company was called Atlas. And so when there's an Atlas logo on those comics, that's referring to the distribution channel. So although we call it Atlas Comics... It was actually Martin Goodman's comics, but they just had a, his distribution logo on it. So that that's just something to kind of... Because when his distributor changed from to uh, from that to the DC Comics one, you see that logo, Atlas logo getting replaced with INDs. So we should know that that's the distributor. And he wanted to reduce costs and reduce overhead and still pump out the same amount of comics. So he essentially closed down his distribution network and went over to American News Corporation. Now, American News Corporation is a whole interesting story, but I'm just going to keep that kind of more brief, but I find it really fascinating because in 1952, the United States government started antitrust litigation against American News Company. A bunch of companies just left, and they were a powerhouse, I mean, they had a monopoly. And other companies, comic companies and magazine companies, just ditched American News. They didn't like the investigations that were happening. Also, on top of that, because of the Comics Code, a couple of magazine lines actually folded, and even Dell ended up pulling out of American News distribution for their own distributor. So American News folds, and now Martin Goodman almost folded. See, there's a domino effect, again, with people folding, everyone's folding after the comics code, and he almost did, but he was able to get a last-minute distribution deal with DC Comics Independent News. They were limited to eight monthly titles, and then Stan turned that into 16 bi-monthly just to get more flexibility and numbers out, just to kind of fool people into thinking, hey, we're still making a bunch of comics. That crunch, Joe Manili dying and Matt Baker died, and then Kirby and Ditko coming in, I mean, that's the seed of Marvel Comics. that is a really just interesting domino effect. Who would have thought that when the comics code came out, all these dominoes would just start falling into place like this?
1: Well, it's that time again when we put the sword back in the stone and the lady back in the lake. Yes, it's time at the end of the show where we try to rave rather than rant. And when we do, we keep it 100. 100 seconds, that is. So, Jim, the stopwatch is set.
0: For you! Go! So I was at a comic convention today, a very small one at a local college. It was just some panels, mainly by professors and students and visiting people that had submitted the call for papers, and I was there at a, a panel where we were just basically doing superhero versus superhero kind of things and talking it out with their power sets and stuff, just for for fun. It's called versus. And it's just great to go to those kinds of ones that are not San Diego Comic Con right. but are instead a few hundred people on a college yeah. campus and they're dressed up and they're they're goofing around and just the the fun in their faces. Kind of like how the old
2: conventions used to be, basically, right?
0: Yeah, and I I did that last year at Comic Fest in San Diego, and I have to say, it's kind of like reading Stephen King's. It or, or The Stand and then going and reading Misery, it's nice to have something where it's like mammoth and gigantic, but it's also nice to have a convention that you can read in one day, that kind of thing. So I enjoyed today and I, I saw the fun on the people's faces that you look more harried and more worn down when you see those same faces at like San Diego Comic-Con. So it was it was a nice thing. And my time's up. Bye. <laughs> wow. No Doom Patrol here needed. No. And Alex,
1: it's your hundred. Go! So I've been on this kick of
2: catching up on old shows. And I don't know if you guys have seen S.H.I.E.L.D. season four. You know, I saw one through three and it was eh. Then season four, I just feel like they took the writing on this whole other level. You know, first there was Ghost Rider. And everyone's like, oh, uh, you know, it's not Johnny Blaze. But they kind of leave it open that Johnny Blaze kind of transferred the spirit of vengeance to this new guy. Oh, yeah. And it's fantastic. And it was fantastic. And then they had the Darkhold, and then the Darkhold gets involved, and then they have this AI character reading the Darkhold, doing spells, and acting like it's actually like an extra-dimensional technology. Then that AI then tries to take over S.H.I.E.L.D., and then when they defeated that, then the AI then created an entire virtual reality, and sucked the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents in, and they explored each character's psychology in this nightmare virtual reality, and the way it ended, I really felt like they took the show to a whole nother level. The character development was awesome, and it got me actually invested in the characters, and it's made Season 5 so much more fun to watch, but I really recommend S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 4. It was awesome.
1: Jim, was the framework in the comics? I believe it was, wasn't it? Yeah. So the framework actually came, the virtual reality world, Alex, came from Marvel Comics. So once more, they're actually dipping into what they probably should have all along. Yeah. And now it's up to me to finish this out, folks. And what I have to say is, okay, I want to go back to Jessica Jones because I'm so happy that it's so good And it's our second dose of a wonderful superhero created by Michael Bendis. And his whole universe has been bought and usurped by Netflix now. So we have a lot of Michael Bendis to uh, come, I believe. But I have to say this. They really are making it all Marvel. It feels like a Marvel comic. It feels like what I love about Marvel, the character development the wonderful angst and the soap opera, but with superpowers. To add to that, I'll say I have to agree with you, Alex. I love Shield. I just watched the latest episode today. Big changes coming. You don't know how it's going to wind up, but you know that Coulson made a
0: deal with Ghost Rider and it's dying. Spoiler alert! Sorry, folks. That's being- not your most egregious thing today in terms of spoilers, so that's fine.
1: Thanks, Jim. But this basically brings us to the end of one of my favorite episodes in a long time. That brings us to the end of a wonderful episode where we had knights, we had chivalry, we had Ditko, we had Kirby, we had a guy named Joe Manili. You know, I threatened to sing a little more earlier. And, well, there's a little more Camelot, albeit... Maybe a tad bit of Spam a lot that I'd like to share as we close out the show. From the other great Arthurian classic, yes, I'm talking about Monty Python's Holy Grail. We're knights of the round table, we dance where we able, we do routines and chorus scenes with footwork impeccable, we dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. We're knights of the round table. Our shows are formidable. uh, But many times we're given rhymes that are quite unsingable. It's a busy
0: life in
1: Camelot. I have to push
0: the pram a
1: lot. Next time, do it with feeling. (laughs) On that note, we say aloha.